Good morning. It's great to be with you all this morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Mark, and I'm one of the elders here at Trinity Park Church, uh, and I have the privilege today to uh, preach God's Word to you. So uh, we've been going this summer through a series on the Kingdom of God, and our passage today challenges us to rethink our understanding of the growth of the kingdom. What does it mean for the kingdom of God to grow? Maybe you're sitting there and you're wondering, is the kingdom of God growing? Is it actually growing today in our worlds here in America? Last December, a Pew Research poll showed that the fastest growing religious group in America are the nuns. Not the Catholic nuns, but the N-O-N-E-S, nuns, those with no religious affiliation whatsoever. More recently, perhaps uh, especially since 2020, there has been a trend among some Christians known as deconstruction. Um, this trend uh, often entails Christians sharing their story about how they either left the faith or about how they've changed their understanding of the faith. Add on top of that the many stories that we've heard of moral, moral failures in the church and the constant barrage of negative news that we hear about the church again and again. How do you feel in the midst of all this? Do you feel that the kingdom of God is growing? Are you anxious about the state of the church? Are you disappointed? Are you worried about what God is or maybe isn't doing in our country. Or maybe by this point, you're feeling apathetic. I know for myself, over the past few years, I've gone through all of those emotions. Anxiety, disappointment, worry, and apathy. In today's passage, I want to show from today's passage how Jesus what Jesus has to say on the kingdom of God challenges us today to rethink our understanding of what it means for the kingdom of God to grow or to succeed. And I think this is uh, really important today because so many of the problems that we face in the church stem from a wrong understanding or an unbiblical understanding of success and growth. So before we turn to the passage or would you pray with me one more time? Lord, uh, thank you so much for your word. I pray that uh, you would speak now through me, that you would grant us all uh, ears to hear, uh, and that you would be here with us, speaking to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So before we look at the passage, at the parables and the story, we need to start by asking, what is the kingdom of God? Right, so we've been going through this series on the kingdom of God, and today I want to talk to you about the kingdom of God growing. So let's consider briefly what the kingdom of God is. Uh, in Luke chapter 4, uh, verse 43, Jesus says this. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So preaching the kingdom of God, that's the reason why Jesus came. He came to preach the gospel. 
He came to preach about the kingdom of God. And when we usually hear the word kingdom, I think the first thing we often think of is a place. We think maybe of a castle. Uh, we think of royalty, or maybe we think of country, a country or land. But the kingdom of God, as you read the Gospels, you see that it's not a place. And if we had to describe the kingdom of God, we could say that it is most generally the rule and the reign of God. It's the coming of God into the world for redemption and judgment. The kingdom of God is the realm in which God is glorified as king and in which God's purposes are fulfilled through the Messiah, Jesus. When Jesus came announcing the kingdom, he didn't come announcing a social program to make the world better. He didn't come proclaiming the start of a new religion or a new political party. But he came preaching the kingdom of God, right? So this is not the kingdom of any group. It is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God reveals God himself as king. It reveals his rule and purposes over the entire world. So the kingdom of God, and this is important, is not first about the church. The kingdom of God is not synonymous with church because the kingdom of God is a revealing of who God is, and God is bigger than the church. It's also not a single place so the kingdom of God is not equivalent to heaven or to the church or church building. It's wherever God's glory is revealed as his purposes are carried out. And in Luke's gospel, we see this. Uh, one uh, biblical commentary on Luke says that the kingdom of God in Luke is a new world order where the demonized, the sick, women and others living on the margins of society are embraced in the redemptive purpose of God. The kingdom of God is both God's saving activity and the community and practices that embody his saving purpose. So you see, it's hard to sum up the kingdom of God in just one sentence because it's not the kind of thing that can be contained. It's not one thing that you can point to and say, that is the kingdom of God and nothing else. The kingdom of God in the Gospels is here, right? When Jesus comes, he says, the kingdom of God is among you. When he casts out demons, he says, the kingdom of God has come. But he also speaks of the kingdom of God as future, right? So that's an important reality, too. The kingdom of God is here, but it's also something that we pray for in the Lord's Prayer. We say, your kingdom come, right? We're expecting the kingdom to come. His miracles, his casting out of demons, were demonstrations of that future kingdom, that future reign of God coming now and here. If this feels a bit vague or abstract to you, like I said, it's because we cannot contain the kingdom of God as one thing in a single sentence. The kingdom of God doesn't refer to heaven, the church, or a set of ethics, but it's its own reality. 
where God is king and he's moving to fulfill his purposes. And in today's passage, we have a story about the kingdom of God and two parables about the kingdom of God. And what I want to do is I want to first look at the parables that are in the second half of this passage. Um, These two uh, sections in our passage are related uh, because in verses 10 through 17, we see this story of Jesus teaching in a synagogue. In verses 18 through 21, uh, Jesus tells us two parables about the kingdom. But what connects these stories is in verse 18, where the Gospel of Luke says, after telling this story, it says, He said, therefore, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? Right? So both of these things are related. Let's start by looking at the parables, and, le- and then let's see how the story fleshes out what these parables mean. So in verse 18, Jesus says, The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and it became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Uh, This is a very famous parable, uh, which has been interpreted in a thousand ways. Most people are more familiar with the version of this parable in Matthew or Mark. And in Matthew, Jesus says that the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it's larger than all the garden plants, and it becomes a tree, right? So that's in Matthew 13. So in Matthew, uh, it's clear that there's a contrast there between the small size of the seed and the large size of the mustard tree. When I read this parable in Luke, uh, before I uh, studied it a little bit more in depth preparing for this sermon, since I don't know anything about mustard trees, uh, when I read this, what I imagine is that Jesus is saying the kingdom of God has a small, insignificant beginning, but it grows to become a massive mustard tree. It grows to have incredible power. It starts as a tiny seed, but then it grows to be powerful and strong. Well, if you've ever seen a mustard tree, you know that it's not really much of a tree. On average, it's about four to eight feet in height. And so scholars have also debated for centuries what the specific tree might be that Jesus is talking about here. The point of the parable in Luke is that the growth of the kingdom of God is surprising. It defies expectations. The point is not that the kingdom of God has small beginnings but then triumphs at the end because of its power and strength. Because if the point of the parable was to emphasize the power and the strength of the kingdom, Jesus would have used other trees. Like in the Old Testament, when the Old Testament speaks about triumph and power, it uses the imagery of a cedar tree, not a mustard tree. The point is that a mustard seed was not expected to become a tree at all. It certainly wasn't expected to be a tree in which birds could come and make nests. So what Jesus is saying here is that the growth of the kingdom of God completely defies what we expect. We expect a mustard seed, or at least the people back then that Jesus was talking to, they expected a mustard seed 
to grow into a mustard plant or a shrub, not a tree where birds could build nests. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, a small seed which you expect to grow into a bush, but it grows into a tree where birds can nest. I think some today, when they read this parable and they think of the kingdom of God with a small beginning but a great end, they focus on the greatness of the tree, right? They think that the point of the parable is that the tree today, the kingdom of God, is powerful or it's meant to be powerful. And then they try by their own power to make the kingdom of God, which they equate with the church, they try to make it look great. But that's not the point of Jesus' parable. And we'll look more um, by looking at the second parable at what Jesus has to say. So in this second parable, Jesus compares the kingdom of God to leaven. He says that the kingdom of God is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Uh, Leaven, if you're not familiar with that term, it's dough. Uh, that's been left to ferment, or it's dough that has yeast in it. Uh, And the woman in this parable, she hides the leaven in three measures of flour, which is a really large amount. It could probably feed about 150 people. So here we see that a very small amount of leaven has a pervasive influence on a huge amount of flour. The entire lump is leavened. The point of this parable is that the kingdom of God, though small in its beginning, like that piece of leaven, it grows and it grows and it influences every aspect of life. It has a pervasive influence in the world, but it's an influence that is hidden, right? It says the woman hid the leaven in the flower. It's not something that you can observe, but it happens slowly over time. The kingdom of God is growing. It's doing its work until eventually the whole lump is ready. So these two parables then, they tell us that the kingdom of God is growing in surprising ways with a surprising end and that the kingdom of God grows in a pervasive way to influence the whole world. Also, it's important to note that the kingdom of God grows in a humble way. Have you ever wondered at the fact that when Jesus talks about the kingdom, he almost never uses images of royalty? He doesn't take his parables from the lives of the elites of society. He doesn't talk about Caesar's palace or a throne or armies. But instead, in order to understand the kingdom of God Almighty, he asks all of us to enter the kitchen of a first century woman baking bread. The kingdom of God defies expectations. It is humble in its character, not just in its beginning, but through and through. It's humble in what it looks like, even as it grows hidden to our eyes, but it's doing its work nonetheless. Now let's turn to the story that Jesus tells, or that the Gospel of Luke tells about Jesus uh, in the synagogue. And this story is gives us a concrete picture of the kingdom of God. And we need these pictures, we need these stories of Jesus 
doing the work of the kingdom so that we can understand these parables rightly. Uh, at the beginning of our passage, it says that Jesus is teaching on the Sabbath. Uh, he's in a synagogue, and he sees a woman who is bent over. She's been in this condition for 18 years, which uh, is older than some of you uh, children here. This means that she's endured shame as someone bent over, someone disabled for a very long period of her life. And in this honor-shame culture of the first century, she was probably sitting somewhere, uh, hidden from sight, somewhere in the back of the synagogue. So notice what Jesus does here. First, Jesus calls her over. He doesn't walk over to where she is, but he beckons her to come to him, where he is, probably in a place of prominence since Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. So he invites her over so that everyone can see. And he says to her, Woman, you are freed. You are freed from your disability. Nothing is said about her in the text regarding um, her credentials, nothing about her faith, nothing here that would make Jesus notice her or qualify her to receive this healing. All we know is that she's been in this shameful state for almost two decades. And if you have to suffer through something like that for so long, it becomes a part of who you are. You get used to the shame, and you get used to how others treat you, and those around you as well get used to how they might turn the other way when they see you becomes easier to overlook these needs after so many years. Not only does Jesus call her here to a place of prominence in the sight of everyone, but it's also significant that Jesus touches her. He lays his hands on her, and it says immediately that she was made straight and that she glorified God. The kingdom of God advances, and as it does, it enters the lives of the broken and the lonely. It enters the lives of those needing redemption. Jesus doesn't shy away from bringing himself near to this woman. In fact, this is the very reason why he came. In Luke chapter 4, when Jesus starts his ministry in a synagogue in Nazareth, he says, quoting from Scripture, that he came to proclaim good news to the poor to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Those who are oppressed, like this woman. The ruler of the synagogue, though, was not happy about this. And it's not because he doesn't like healings. Uh, in fact, he would probably welcome miracles like this from a teacher such as Jesus. But this was the Sabbath, and you don't work on the Sabbath. And everyone there knew this. Remember, this woman had this condition for 18 years, so the people there were probably thinking, including the synagogue leader, Jesus, couldn't you just wait one more day? 
the synagogue leader who is annoyed. He doesn't even address Jesus himself in the text, but it says that he talks to the people. And he does this because he wants to publicly challenge Jesus' authority. And the synagogue leader here says, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed. Not today. The synagogue leader bases his argument on what he thinks ought to be done. And he's challenging Jesus here, but he's also challenging the woman, right? He says, come on those days and be healed. We can assume that she's been coming. She's been in this position for 18 years, but she hasn't been healed. Jesus responds then directly to him and his hypocrisy, and he says that if you release or untie an animal on all days of the week, including the Sabbath, how much more this daughter of Abraham? If you release an animal bound for just a few hours, how much more this woman whom Satan has bound for 18 years? Jesus says, this is what you ought to do. He says, ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? You see, the synagogue leader wants to leave this debate at the level of discussions about the law. But Jesus says, you debate from the law which you don't understand. But this woman is a daughter of Abraham, a daughter of the covenant, the covenant which is the very hope of the law itself. This here is a story of divine reversal in which the lowly and humble are lifted up and those with honor are brought low. It says in verse 17 that as Jesus was saying this, all his adversaries were put to shame, right? So we have this woman who's lived in shame for almost 20 years who glorifies God and Jesus' adversaries put to shame. The people in Jesus' day knew about the kingdom of God. They were familiar with that language. And they were excited when Jesus came preaching about a kingdom because they thought that that kingdom meant that they would finally have power to overthrow their oppressors. They thought that it meant they would finally be freed from Roman rule and have an earthly king ruling over Israel. But Jesus came to shatter those expectations. The parables show us that the kingdom of God has humble beginnings. And we see that here in this unnamed woman who's freed from Satan and healed from her disability. This is the kingdom of God coming. The kingdom of God is not about establishing an earthly king, but of revealing how God is and always has been king and how his plans to redeem the world don't line up with the world's understanding of what it needs. The kingdom of God is like that leaven. It invades all areas of our lives. It spreads through three measures of flour. The work of God touches areas of our lives that we'd rather keep to ourselves, like the synagogue leader who did not apply the Sabbath law to his private animals whom he would release. Jesus exposes his hypocrisy to show that no part of our lives 
No part of the world is outside of the reach of God's kingdom. The kingdom goes beyond our denominational allegiances. It goes beyond our Sunday attendance to every aspect of who we are, every aspect of the world. The whole lump is being leavened. And the kingdom of God is humble in nature because the king himself is humble. He came as a servant, and he died a shameful death on a cross so that those he loved would receive honor. It's the divine reversal. So when we think about how the kingdom of God is growing today, we need to ask whether our standards of growth and success are the standards of God or the standards of the world. Does our anxiety and worry show that our peace rests in the power and influence of the church? The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that grows in unexpected ways. Its growth is hidden like the leaven. So we ought to think more in kingdom terms. But when we do, we need to remember what the kingdom of God is like. Our hearts need to be filled with the spirit of Jesus who was crucified and raised so that we can see how the kingdom of God is unlike the kingdoms of this world. And I think a great picture of this uh, is a picture that we get in the book of Acts, right? So if you remember the book of Acts and how it ends, uh, it doesn't end with Paul sailing on a ship with a great band of followers heading to Spain to plant new churches uh, so that the church would grow and take over the Roman Empire, right? No, the book of Acts ends with Paul under house arrest. Paul is under the complete control of the Roman Empire, right? And he's likely heading to his death by that kingdom. But what does the book of Acts say? It says that under house arrest, under the subjugation of the Roman Empire, Paul was preaching the kingdom of God with boldness and without hindrance. The world cannot understand that. The only way to understand how that can be true is through the cross, is through the perspective of our king who was crucified. The humble way in which the kingdom of God grows should caution us against using worldly measures of growth and success. Um, recently, uh, it's come to light, I guess it's not too recent now, but a few months ago, it came to light that uh, some churches in our country over a long time, have covered up spiritual abuse in the name of the greater good of kingdom advancement. It's a great tragedy. And that kind of logic flies in the face of the story of this woman, right? This woman's story where we see here the kingdom of God advancing through Jesus' tender care for this neglected woman as we pray for God's kingdom to advance in the world, we need to consider the modest, simple ways in which God is working through all of us here to impact the world. These are the things that won't make any headlines, 
the things that can't be numbered on spreadsheets, but these are the things that are more similar to the images of the kingdom that Jesus gives us. You know, we hear about these moral failures among church leaders, and we should weep and be sad, and we should think, how can we do better? But when we see that, we shouldn't equate that with the kingdom of God failing. Because when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, what does he say? He says, let the children come to me, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. He says, you want to know what the kingdom of God is like? Then see this woman hiding leaven in a lump of flour. These are the instances of daily faithfulness in your homes, with your children, with your family, with your neighbors and your co-workers. The kingdom of God advances when God's people live out the values and the purposes of God's kingdom. So when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, we're praying that we ourselves would reflect the character of God's rule, which is not domineering, but which is humble and meek, like Jesus here, caring for this woman. Jesus says to his disciples later in Luke, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. Brothers and sisters, let's strive to do that in reliance on the Spirit. And let's have hope that the leaven of God's kingdom is doing its work in this world in unseen ways. That leaven is bringing about God's purposes for the glory of his name and the good of his people. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you that you are our humble king. I thank you that your kingdom is so much greater than we can imagine. Your kingdom is hidden and working in mysterious ways, but it is working, not just uh, on conference stages or on big platforms or in uh, numbers, Lord, but in the daily faithfulness of your people right here, Lord, when we choose to live out the values of your kingdom, when we choose to love the broken, when we seek out those who are in need, and when we proclaim the good news of who you are for those who need redemption. Lord, help us to be faithful to that kingdom. And Lord, would your kingdom come and would your will be done here as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.